Welcome to The Early Advantage. I'm James Early. We're going to talk about crypto today. After I talk for a little bit, we're going to have an interview, and then we'll have Brian Christopher's uh, wishlist stock screener coming up. So stay tuned for the whole show. And if you like the whole show, by the way, just hit subscribe and hit like. Um, those little clicks are easy, hopefully, for you to do, but they, they make a big difference uh, for me. They mean a lot, so I appreciate any support I can get. Uh, speaking of, of support, uh, crypto has gotten a bit more support in the past month. Prices are going back up after a horrific first half of the year. People are asking, should I buy? Is crypto going away? Is crypto coming back? Um, now, look, I'm not a crypto expert. I've said it many times, but I do have, and I think sometimes I think that's actually good because a lot of the crypto experts are so into it that you can't really get an unbiased answer out of them. And, and maybe it's just my ignorance speaking. I'm not, I don't want to, to, to swim in water this too deep for me on this topic, but I will talk about a few key points that I see. Uh, I don't think crypto is going away in the sense of like the, I forgot his name, but the, the, the governor of the Reserve Bank of India says, guess what? Central bank digital currencies are going to kill private cryptos. Um, that may be true in, in very autocratic societies like China and India is leaning that way too over time. I don't think it's possible to happen in, in democ democratic societies like the US, UK, uh, much of Europe, Australia, uh, Japan. There's just too much demand, and politicians would, you know, be be vilified if they if they just totally banned it. Uh, I would be shocked. However, what is going away is the dumb money, and I don't necessarily mean low IQ investors. There are a lot of smart investors who invest uh, like dumb money or alongside the dumb money when it makes money. Um, it's based on what we call the greater fool theory in finance. I may be a fool to buy this investment at this price, but I'm betting that an even greater fool is going to show up eventually and pay a higher price than me. And guess what? That works for a while until suddenly it doesn't. And 2022 has been the year of doesn't. Um, here's the thing. If we look at five or 10 years, my own prediction is I, I see the store of value argument uh, diminishing for cryptocurrencies writ large. And I think the value, you know, because for stocks, you have many determinants or, or factors of value for valuing stocks, things like um, earnings, cash flows, assets. Uh, these, there's not a prescriptive formula per se, but across many decades, across markets, across many types of companies, there is a long history of, of share prices reverting, mean reverting to uh, numbers that are sort of determined by some of these factors. They do get out of whack sometimes, but they tend to come back. Crypto does not have any of those factors, basically. Um, and, and neither does gold, neither does art. I mean, neither do a lot of collectibles, for that matter. Okay, so that's not, that doesn't mean it's it's bad, but it, it doesn't really have a lot of, like, tangible hooks that we can use to determine its value. So I think, I think over time, that value is going to converge on the, on, on what cryptos can do that wasn't possible to do before cryptos. In other words, what does this crypto do that I or we or a group, group of people couldn't do before it existed? The cryptos that have the best answers to that question will have the highest value. That is my prediction. In other words, they're almost converging on on what NFTs do in certain ways, right? Besides being a, you know, a way to show off your your apes, um, NFTs have real life functions. You know, a, a band could sell concert tickets via an NFT that gives you certain privileges. I know um, Dallas Mavericks, a basketball team owned by uh, Mark Cuban, uh, it gives you perks if you're a, if you show up 
uh, you know, before the end of the first quarter. I, I think I forgot what it is, but basically it's a smart contract in a way. Um, that's great. You know, we'll see much more of that. And in cryptos that are that enable that sort of thing, I think will have certain value. But um, with central bank digital currencies coming online, uh, I, I'm just not sure. I think almost all the speculative value that we're seeing now is going to get washed out. Um, I'm not saying don't be a crypto investor today, but you want to be in one of the, the, the few cryptos that's going to survive. All right. Speaking of that, let's see what my other points are. Um, regulation. I think regulation is a big, big thing. You know, so many things I wrote about uh, cocaine uh, being unregulated for many, many years until finally it suddenly got regulated. It happened with prostitution. It happened with pollution. It happened with many, many things. Um, crypto is probably nearing that phase when we're seeing now uh, people searching for suicide and how to kill themselves because of crypto's uh, price crash. I mean, it's first of all, it's terrible. And I hope anyone who's watching and is having those thoughts can call one of the many great hotlines that are available out there. Um, Fortunately, I think most people are not at that point, but, you know, it, it says something that, that this happened, you know, that, that something can can come in so quickly and, 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 and wreak so much destruction um, and, and also create so much wealth. And it's out of the regulators control. They've been late to the party. The people who become regulators are often conservative, kind of, you know, uh, slower moving uh, tortoise types. And, and crypto is all about the hairs. And, and that's been the challenge. In, in the UK, the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, seems to be the main regulator. I'm sure Parliament is going to have their say. In the US, it's a mess. You know, you've got the CFTC, the Commodities Futures uh, Trading Commission. You've got SEC. You've got the Securities and Exchange Commission. You've got the U.S. Treasury, which uh, embeds something called uh, FinCEN, which basically stops financial crimes. Um, you've got the FTC uh, for certain frauds. Uh, the Fed has gotten involved a little bit, um, you know, and, and, and Congress has certainly continued to pass laws as well. So you've really got this alphabet soup of regulators, and each one is kind of vying for its its little piece. And we don't know what's going to happen, but I, I think that's been a problem. And it's been a problem before crypto, by the way. I think four or five different regulators regulate investment banks also. We don't have like this single Uber regulator for stuff, and and crypto is just bringing that problem out into the fore. And the problem existed beforehand, uh, but the regulator in, in, in the UK, the regulation has uh, leaned on the conservative side, ban this, ban this, ban this, ban that, um, because we don't understand it or we're not sure about this, let's ban it. And, and I'm not saying that's the wrong move, but but I think it's, it's the reaction you can expect from regulators who, who really don't necessarily totally understand something yet, they're trying to get caught up. They're, they're not sure. They want to err on the side of caution. So that's what they do. Um, of course, the trade-off is, will that crypto development, will that R&D, will you know, whatever happens go to some you know, island country or, or some, some place that's more supportive of crypto and, and, and uh, less strict regulatorily? Uh, you know, maybe, I'm really not sure how big of a, of a, of a pie uh, the UK or, or the US may be missing by being overly strict. Uh, it, it's still something to consider. But um, bottom line, I, I, th I do think things are going to get a lot tighter, uh, and, th and they should. And I think the, the cryptos that play by the rules are going to prosper and, and probably see more investment from the big institutions. And that's been the other story is regulation is is not just going to protect the little guy. The other benefit is it's going to signal to the big money that 
they can safely invest in crypto because they've been waiting for clarity on on a lot of different things. You know, in, in the U.S., we've got is it a security or is it a, a utility uh, token, um, depending on on you know, whether you expect the price to go up or what's the purpose of it, uh, tax treatment, accounting treatment. A lot of these things are still vague, still up in the air, uh, and and that'll enable the big money to come in. The question is, will the big money really want to come in? Uh, it, it, I think it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, is what's the long-term value case for crypto? I, I don't think it's going to just keep going up because other people are buying it thinking it's going to go up. And, and crypto, by and large, has been bought by people who, you know, God bless them, but who don't really have a strong understanding of valuation, or at least a lot of them, at least a lot of people that I know, I should say, uh, are buying crypto. It's fairly young investors. Um, they would have no idea how to value a stock uh, if, if you gave it to them. And crypto is not a stock, but you know they just don't know the principles of valuation. They're buying it because it seems hot. It's going up. And you know I bought a little Bitcoin. I'm, I'm, I'm one of them in a sense. But my point, my point is that you know, in the long term, that's not going to last. That, that party ends. That party, you know, has probably already ended, but that's a blessing too because it cleans out the riffraff, it cleans out the scams, it cleans out a lot of the junk uh, because scams love dumb money. Scams love dumb money, and that's a lot of what has been funneling into crypto in the past couple of years in this latest boom. So anyway, I, I'm kind of rambling here. Let me see if I covered all my points. Um, you know, I, I, I still would put additional money into crypto if I'm my, my, just myself. Um, but I, I think the, the speculative party is ending and kind of the conservative use case, long-term valuation way to think about crypto um, is beginning. And that's frustrating for people who are hoping to get rich quickly. Uh, you know, sorry to be a buzzkill, but I think for the get rich slowly crowd, uh, Probably the good times are just beginning. So cross my fingers. Uh, hope that happens. I hope we don't have more carnage. We might. You know, we might not be at the bottom. We'll probably still have some more blowups. As we can see, a lot of these cryptos were mass. These exchanges, sorry, were, were way over levered. Um, didn't know what they're doing. Weren't uh, the... the the regulations or the controls, uh, if we're not talking about legal regulations, were not as as good as many participants thought. Uh, and now we're seeing the effect of that. You know, maybe decentralization is not always so great, but some of these weren't even fully decentralized either. So it, it is a little bit complicated. But long story short, uh, you know, I, I think this washout is is net net good. Um, it does kill a party, but but it sets the stage for for longer term wealth building and, and really adding value to society. Cryptocurrencies are down this year. Should you stay or should you go? I don't have the answers. I don't have all the answers to anything, but my guest today just might. His name is Daniel Bianca. He's the Associate Professor of Finance, an Associate Professor, professor of Finance, I should say, at Queen Mary University in London. Uh, Daniel or Professor Bianchi, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. First of all, let me just ask you right off the bat, do you own any cryptocurrencies yourself and why? I do, I do. <laughs> uh, Which ones? Which, I, 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 I have Bitcoin. Full uh, I just have Bitcoin. Well, I have a little bit of Bitcoin and a little bit of smaller one uh, in decentralized finance space. Uh, and the reason is because I find particular a particular interesting couple of projects uh, which which I hold for the long term. Got it. Got it. And so that that brings up kind of my first question is how should we be thinking about how to value cryptocurrencies? Obviously, a lot of people, at least the people that I know, 
have been piling into cryptos for the past couple of years just because they've been going up. You know, we call it dumb money. And it could be smart people, but you know, investing in a dumb money way. I'm buying because everyone else is buying. And there's some truth to momentum, but that party seems to be over. And on one hand, I, I see uh, you know, some cryptos may have a utility case, like you can do something with them that you couldn't do without cryptos before, without these particular cryptos. On the other hand, there's sort of a store of value case, like kind of like gold or like art or you know, whatever, you know, tickle me Elmo dolls we had in the US, you know, some stupid doll that was super popular like 20 years ago. Um, my question is, what are the pieces of, of value going to look like if I'm a long-term investor for three years, five years, 10 years into the future? Well, this is, this is a very complicated question, as you can imagine. Uh, part of the reason is because the crypto space is very heterogeneous by nature almost. Uh, Bitcoin is different than Ethereum. Ethereum is different than you know, all of the DeFi projects. Then you have uh, Web 3.0, then you have uh, the metaverse, you have NFTs. I mean, all of these things are different animals. So giving an answer to that fits, you know, one size fits all is, is essentially impossible. Uh, nevertheless, we can think about value as a, as a function of adoption, really. So the more a project gets adopted, uh, the more value uh, is going to get. Bitcoin is, for instance, the case in point. The more people are going to use Bitcoin for, for transaction and, and payments, the higher the value of Bitcoin. The more people uh, believe that Bitcoin has an intrinsic value, the, the, the higher the, uh, the value of Bitcoin in, in, uh, as a consequence to that. So really boils down to adoption. Now, adoption means different things depending on the project we look at. Adoption means fees within the, the decentralized finance space. So how many fees a platform attracts, so how many revenues it generate. Adoption means payments within the context of Bitcoin, for instance, or Litecoin or other mythical payments. Uh, adoption means use case for Ethereum, for instance, so smart contracts applications. Uh, so it means different things. But at the end of the day, it's all about adoption, really. Uh, when it comes to the long-term value of different cryptocurrencies, it boils down to adoption at the end. That makes sense. That makes it a lot more intelligent answer than I would have, have, have thought of myself. Um, I guess my question is, though, that adoption, I mean, that, that's also driven by something, right? Like someone has to want to adopt. There's a why behind that adoption. So I'm guessing that why is maybe going to be mostly determined by, by either use case or perception of something as a store of value. Would you agree with that? Sure, absolutely, absolutely. I guess we can make a couple of examples just to clarify what do I mean by adoption. So let's take Bitcoin uh, as a first example. So Bitcoin, the, the, the origin of Bitcoin is try to fix uh, counterparty risk at the end. So try to have a platform whereby you don't have any intermediaries for claiming payments, and therefore you don't have any counterparty risk. Uh, the, the, the adoption of Bitcoin is a function of how cheap and effective payments can be delivered. And over the last few years, has been, there has been an enormous amount of effort through the Lightning Network, through technological developments that actually improve significantly efficiency and reduce significantly costs. That naturally brought uh, more value for Bitcoin. So uh, when, it comes to, when it comes to adoption in Bitcoin means payments that are more, more efficient, payments that are uh, less expensive 
And as a natural consequence to that, more people are gonna use Bitcoin or are gonna think about using Bitcoin for payments. That, that is essentially the, the, adoption, uh, uh, the adoption argument within the context of Bitcoin. A second example we could make is within the decentralized finance. Think about decentralized exchanges. So those platforms whereby traders can swap assets uh, um, without necessarily having an intermediary. So there is, uh, there is no actual intermediaries to, to, to clear, to clear uh, trades. The adoption means higher fees, means better liquidity, means more revenues for the holders of token uh, that are built upon these decentralized exchanges. So clearly adoption means that if you buy shares or if you buy a token on these decentralized exchanges, you're gonna get more revenue. So you're gonna get more value. Uh, so, so adoption really in, in that sense means, uh, means uh, more, more revenues that are coming out from the platform, from decentralized, decentralized exchanges in this particular case. The, the government, the governor, excuse me, of the Reserve Bank of India, I'm forgetting his name, um, recently said that central bank digital currencies are going to kill private cryptocurrencies. And, and certainly on one level, like a transaction level, they're probably a lot more convenient or going to be. Um, is he right overall, though? And if, if not, why? Uh, this, is an, this is an argument that keeps going on, and we can actually argue that the reason why CBDC has been, let's say, pushed in the first place was because cryptos were becoming extremely popular, in particular stable coins. So sort of as a countermeasure from, 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 from central banks they created uh, or they are planning to create CBDC. I'm not particularly sympathetic to the view that CBDC are going to kill crypto because they are essentially two very different things. The, the value proposition of CBDC is to improve uh, essentially payment system, to uh, improve to, to some extent the transmission of monetary policy and ultimately to improve liquidity and reduce uh, the uh, counterparty risk when it comes to uh, transactions across banks or transactions across retails. When it comes to the, the cryptocurrency space at, at large, is not just about counterparty risk and it's not just about monetary policy. In fact, there is no monetary policy at all or monetary policy is, is a simple piece of code that is written in given protocols. So they are different things. So I don't see any reason why uh, CBDC, the introduction of CBDC should kill the crypto space at large. There might be projects such as stable coins, for instance, that they might have less value to exist less reasons to exist. But if I look at the crypto space at large, uh, I don't think that CBDC are gonna kill the market because the, it's not the same thing. CBDC and cryptos are not the same thing. They're actually very different, very different things. And I guess you could argue, you know, whether it's CBDC or, or just governments, maybe in, in certain autocratic governments like China or, or maybe India, no, uh, the government could kill. But I think in, in the democracies, there's just a lot of popular demand for cryptos and the politicians would be very unpopular if they tried to, to kill them. Um, Bill Gates, uh, let's see who else, Warren Buffett, I think is his partner, Charlie Munger. Uh, there are a lot of, or a number of smart people have been very critical of cryptos or NFTs, calling them Ponzi schemes. Um, and, and there's certainly, 
a, a big argument for that if you look back over the past couple of years. I know, for example, um, you know, cryptos were built by some people or said by some people to be great uncorrelated assets. They do their own thing. They're not connected to the rest of the market. But in fact, in real life, at least over the past couple of years, they've traded right alongside uh, meme stocks and, and risk assets. In other words, the same people buying GameStop or AMC theaters uh, are also buying Bitcoin, also buying Ethereum, also buying these other cryptos and, and, and probably not for the deepest of reasons. Um, if you take out those investors, um, how much of a case for crypto is left? In other words, like, are, are we are we at ten percent capacity, twenty percent capacity of what we were before? I mean, I think there's no question. At least to me, there was a big bubble. Um, you know, what's what's left after the bubble, and is it still an attractive uh, investment for institutions? Certainly, there is a bubble component. There is lots of, uh, let's say, sentiment in it. Uh, and you can call it momentum to a large extent. You can call it, uh, you know, speculate, speculative behaviors. You can call it many ways. The reality is that we have to separate the reasons of, of trading cryptos in the first place. You mentioned, uh, 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 you know, meme stocks. Uh, there is lots of, there is lots of, uh, there are lots of similarities between meme stocks and cryptos, and you can actually think about all of those as sort of lottery ticket, ticket, tickets at the end. The, the reality is that lots of people are going to buy into these things because they are hoping that uh, through adoption or through speculation, they're going to get lots of, lots of profits. Uh, it's essentially like buying a lottery ticket. Uh, you have almost certain possibility to lose everything, but there is a tiny possibility that you actually make a lot of money. Right. And this is the way lots of people think about investing in the crypto space, which is, as you mentioned, is exactly the same rationale in investing in, in meme stocks or, or, similar, or similar, similar things. Uh, now, that said, it does not necessarily mean that if you take a long term perspective and if you zoom out a bit and you look at the, the, the intrinsic value of some of these projects, not all of, them are, not all of those are just speculation. Some of those are actually valuable projects. Now, the million dollar question is which one do have any value, which one don't? That's essentially the, the key question. And I'm very sympathetic with the view that the cryptocurrency space can be thought as a, as a, as a large you know, um, uh, speculative, uh, you know, arena to a large extent, because that's, that's true. There is lots of speculation and there is a lot of you know, Ponzi schemes, as you mentioned, there is lots of room for illegal activities as well. And that, that essentially is due to the fact that there is not much regulation. So that's primarily where regulators need to step in. But even if we take, uh, you know, 90% of the market, Let's take a, a stand and say 90% of the market is fraudulent. There is still a 10% of the market that is not and actually can bring any value. The, the, the million dollar question is what these 10% of projects actually are. Um, yep. And you mentioned regulation and regulation is something that's very messy. I mean, in the, in the UK, it seems like the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authorities, is emerging as the main regulator. I'm sure Parliament can also regulate as well. Uh, in the US, we've got a real mess. You know, we've got a Congress, we've got the CFTC, we've got SEC, we've got the Treasury Department, which runs this FinCEN. Uh, we've got the, the Federal Reserve itself and, and, and probably some other 
acronyms that I'm forgetting. Uh, final question for you, Danielle. If you could hypnotize the world's regulators and they're going to obey anything you say, um, how would you guide regulation of cryptocurrency along key principles, um, especially principles that you think may not be followed correctly right now? This is, this is a very interesting question. Uh, and again, it boils down to uh, the different nature of, of different sectors within the cryptocurrency space. Think about stable coins. Stable coins should be uh, primarily regulated. If you ask me, it should be primarily regulated as banks because they actually have reserves. They have to manage reserves to keep the pegging with the, let's say, US dollars or British pounds or the euro or whatever. Uh, so they, they primarily have sort of a shadow banking uh, type of responsibility, or they should be regulated in a way similar to the uh, money market mutual funds or similar to the uh, euro dollar accounts. When it comes to that's when it comes to stable coins. When it comes to cryptocurrencies, as I said, my view is that primarily there are securities at the end. So we can think about we can think about cryptos really as as, as stocks, as shares to a large extent. Because what, what you primarily, well, for the vast majority, uh, there could be exception, exceptions, obviously, but for the vast majority, I would think about cryptos mostly as securities and with all of the regulation that applies with it, really. So I, 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 would, look at, I would look at a regulate, regulatory framework that is very close to what we already have for, for small caps, for meme stocks and, and securities at large. That makes sense. Very reasonable answer and reasonable answers overall across the board. I'm very glad we brought you on here, Danielle. Thank you very much for, for sharing your, your time, sharing your expertise with us. And thanks to you for watching at home as well. Thanks a lot for having me. Hi there. I'm Brian Christopher. The product I write for South Bank Research is called Follow the Money. In it, we track the buying of insiders, that's uh, officers and directors, and large owners of company stock. We believe no one knows more about their companies than these parties, so we follow their lead into attractive stocks. I've told my subscribers this before, and I told you this last week. Investing doesn't have to be hard. Of course, that doesn't mean things won't go wrong. They will from time to time, but sometimes the setup is too good to ignore. Last week, I attended the Rule Symposium on Natural Resource Investing in Boca Raton, Florida. I found one of these setups there. Many of you know that Rick Rule is a legend in natural resource investing. He's made a lot of money in this space over the years for his customers and for himself. At his conference, the exhibitors that he assembles are a group of companies that he himself invests in they aren't simply companies that pay him a fee to attend. That means these companies are vetted more than the exhibitors at most conferences. The exhibitors at Rick's events are companies that he himself pays, in a sense, when he buys their shares. And that's where I learned about some current names that will benefit from an attractive setup if they execute. I've made money for my subscribers over the years by buying gold development companies that are close to production. One of the reasons why this is attractive is because it takes time, often a couple years to build a mine. 
Who's willing to wait that long these days? In a previous newsletter I wrote, I recommended my subscribers buy shares of Victoria Gold, ticker VGCX on the Toronto Exchange for $6 Canadian in June 2019. Victoria was building a mine in the Yukon Territory of Canada. It's not a paradise. Building a mine is tough enough, but it's even tougher in these cold, snowy conditions. So the process took some time and therefore some patience, but shares eventually rewarded us. They peaked at more than $20 Canadian 14 months later. Shares peaked in August 2020 along with the gold price. And that was fine. We weren't necessarily looking to buy and hold this stock forever. We mainly wanted to buy and hold it until the market realized that one, Victoria's Eagle Mine would produce gold, and two, it would grow that production. Markets are fickle though. They didn't want to buy until the mine went into production. When it generated cash flow by selling its gold, it wanted proof. Finding more examples of these types of setups can make you money. One of the companies I met with at the Rural Symposium fits this bill. They had just raised enough money to take it to production based on its current estimates. This same company presented a screen, a wish list, if you will, identifying there are only three public companies on the market today that are in the same situation. As you can see in this graphic, G Mining Services, ticker GMIN in Canada, made some assumptions to arrive at the presented three company punchline. This slide struck me because it's exactly how we create our wish list. Start with the thesis and use certain criteria to drill down to learn potential ideas that will benefit from it. In this case, the thesis is companies that are going to start generating cash flow are attractive ideas to consider. In addition to G Mining's project, only two others fit these criteria. Let's talk about each of them. Sabina Gold and Silver, ticker SBB in Canada, is building its goose mine in the Nunavut Territory of Canada. In February, it announced it had entered into a $520 million package to finance the project. Sabina expects to begin producing in the first quarter of 2025. The thing that happens with these processes is people stop caring. And if Sabina won't produce gold until 2025, why should they care? Because when prices get cheaper and the story gets better, you should care. We will follow their press releases and track and see if they're on schedule. And remember, it's only 2022. We're going to follow this story because Sabina could make us some money in the future. Similarly, Artemis Gold, ticker ARTG in Canada, is developing the Blackwater Project in British Columbia. Artemis Management has done this before. They took their former company, Atlantic Gold, to production in just three years. They sold the company shortly thereafter. Artemis expects to begin building in December 2022, and if all goes to plan, will pour its first gold in the first half of 2024. This is a proven management team that has done this before. This is a great setup. Finally, G Mining, again, ticker GMIN on the Toronto Exchange is building the Tocantinzinho project in Brazil. This is the company I met with at Rick Rule's conference in Florida. G Mining's team knows what it's doing. It has built four other mines, including the huge Fruta del Norte mine in Ecuador. 
G Mining's current market cap is 258 million US. That's as of Friday's close, the 29th of July. Their net present value or NPV of this project is 622 million, assuming $1,600 gold. That said, as I film this, the gold price is more than 1750 an ounce. For each $100 per ounce the gold price rises, the mine is worth another 105 million US. That means the current NPV of this project is at least $780 million US. And again, it's trading at 250 million. To be clear though, G Mining hasn't even started building the mine yet. And when they do, things could go wrong. It expects to begin producing gold in the third quarter of 2024. I encourage you to follow this story. If the construction progress is positive, that means G Mining will be closer to cash flow. As with all of these wish list videos, these are not official investment recommendations, but I encourage you all to follow these three and other pre-production opportunities like them. Building a mine is boring and investors stop paying attention during the process. When they do and shares fall, you may be able to swoop in and make money. Thank you.